show, The Guys Chat with author Micah Hanks of thegraylianreport.com. Welcome back to The Guy America Show. Uh, this week we're going to have Micah Hanks on the program, but uh, first let me get to my co-host, Graham. How's it going, Graham? I'm doing excellent. Right on. Uh, anything new? I know I know you post, noticed you posted those orb videos on the site. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to talk about those for sure. Yeah, those are pretty cool. Actually, uh, speaking of the website, it's um, it's getting there. It's definitely a work in progress, but I find it's looking a little better today than it uh, than it has been for a while. Um, we've added a, a link so you can just uh, if you're having trouble, you can just go to grimerica.com and and click on the iTunes link now. Um, We've also got a couple new bloggers. Uh, well, we've always had Scattering Skype Spirits. We've had um, her blogging for us for a little while, but uh, she just had a new post this week, so I suggest uh, you guys come on down and check it out. And then we've got Seeking Paradigm. He's new, and his first one is a pretty cool post about how he thinks his Xbox is spying on him. So <laughs> That um, should be good. Yeah, that's, I, I read about half of it, but I'm going to finish it up when we're done here. Um, so it's kind of weird. We had quite a few technical gremlins with this interview. I don't know if it's uh, MIBs or what the fuck's going on there. What do you What do you think about that, Graham? I don't know. I think the the Hadels made it all the way from the bunker to the igloo. Yeah, those motherfuckers, eh? That's yeah. We had a hell of a time uh, recording this interview. Actually, in the end, we had to get Micah to record it for us and send it to us but so hopefully we can get those problems i've never had problems like that before so i don't know Some, something's up something's yeah you had you had two computers going to try it out um oh, luckily now i've got a backup recording program so if that ever happens again hopefully i can step in and, and help out a bit i felt a bit uh useless there i got disconnected quite a few times too so i'm hardwired in now also so that should help yeah, so hopefully uh well like i said uh, it was all going to be a work in progress so but we're getting there one step at a time. Uh, once again, uh, the website's www.grimerica.com or grimerica.ca. Uh, you can now get right to the iTunes page just by typing www.grimerica.ca slash iTunes. And you can email us at feedback at grimerica.ca. Um, so we've definitely been noticing some interest uh, from all over the world, so that's pretty exciting getting uh, nice to hear people yeah, downloading that's very exciting we've had some positive feedback too from uh, friends and and people we don't know yeah so that's good we'll uh, we'll just keep them coming um, so let's get down to your or videos you want to tell us the story around the, the which one do you want to talk about first yeah I'm gonna talk about the the one from the Cathedral Vortex first that's the one I took um, so I was down in Arizona for the UFO Congress and I was in Sedona for a couple days prior and I climbed up to the Cathedral Vortex there, did that little hike up there and I was meditating up there for a little bit uh, just taking pictures and you know videos of the surroundings um, when I got back home I hadn't really looked at uh, any videos or pictures you know I just take them all and then I don't really go through them all and I was showing a friend them and um, and uh, we were looking at the video and it was kind of the first time I'd really looked at it and she says uh, oh did you see that orb there and I said oh what are you talking about there's no orb there I go that must have been the sun shining or something and I'm continuing on she goes no 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 go back go back and look at it so I scroll back and sure enough this little thing bounces through the bottom of the screen 
I was like, holy shit. Yeah, you're right. There is something there. So, I, I mean, I don't know what that is, what it could be. Um, maybe it's uh, the light reflecting on something in the camera. But definitely the the uh, the camera um, the camera movement doesn't seem to match the, the orb going through the bottom of the screen. So, anyways, that's that one. And, and the interesting thing was I was down there in Arizona with an orb video from my friend. Now, that's, that's the other one that's on the website. I think it's called uh, we put amazing orb orb video at my friend's condo and that was after his sweat lodge experience and he was videotaping his little dog trying to jump up on the couch and he started seeing he saw, he saw these orbs because he exclaimed something like oh my god and then he mentioned something about his spirit guides and would they light it up a bit and then um, so I mean you could tell there's something going on these orbs are floating around and I don't think uh, those are dust particles or anything like that. And then about two minutes and 11 seconds in around there, one flies like pretty much right to the screen. Uh, I don't know. It looks pretty amazing to me. I'm not really an orb phenomena guy. Like I've, I've known about it. I haven't really been following it. I mean, I'm interested in it just like I'm interested in a lot of these phenomena. Um, and I know that the skeptics would say, Oh, it's dust particles or lens flares or whatever. And, you know, but I, the way I think of that is, is similar to uh, what the skeptics would say about uh, any other of these phenomena. Like, they, they seem to paint the whole phenomena with a broad brush, right? Like, you know, the, the B-2 uh, stealth bomber sightings are, you know, explain all the UFO sightings out there, that kind of thing, right? Well, I don't think dust particles explain all the orb sightings out there. In fact, there's a lot of, uh, you know, personal accounts of people visually seeing them. So it's not just stuff that gets taken on photographs or videos, so when I was down at the UFO Congress, I was watching a lecture, and they were talking about uh, guys after a sweat lodge uh, following these orbs around in the forest. So they're actually physically seeing orbs in the forest. So I guess part of the native legend is uh, that there are they are spirit guides or these spirits that are with the people in the sweat lodge, and then you can actually see them afterwards. So that kind of correlated with my friend's story about how he finished his sweat lodge and then videotaped those orbs in his condo. So take a look. It's, it is fascinating. I'd love to hear what people think about that. Yeah, they're pretty cool. I like, uh, I like them both. They're, I don't know the the one, uh, the one in your buddy's condo there, I think it's got, there's a lot more going on in the background and shit than I think it's just like the one little single spot. There's an orb in the Phoenix one, right? Or not Phoenix, Sedona. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the other one, like, if you look into the background, you can kind of see them shooting out all over the place. So, yeah. Who knows? I, I don't know much about orbs myself, but it's definitely pretty cool. Um, so I haven't heard anything from Mars One yet, so I'm still going to take their silence as uh, <laughs> as scam. <laughs> I wonder, you know, I, I should look around and see if they've done any interviews with anyone else. I haven't, uh, I haven't heard of anything. But uh, who knows? I'm gonna, I'm gonna look right now, you know. I'm... Yeah, take a look. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not as inclined to uh, to be willing to go after. I heard the guys talking on the mysterious universe about some of the. What, what, what were those people they were testing? There's. Yeah, I don't know. There, there is an interview here. It's only text, but I'll read it after. I'll have I'll have more next week. I'm still saying it's a scam. But anyway. Uh, so Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss came in. Wow, yeah, I can't wait to read that. Yeah, I've uh, it's one of those ones you, it's tough to put down once you get into it. I read a, I got pretty good dent in it last night and it's pretty good shaping up to be a gooder. 
That's good. But it's a pretty intimidating 500 pages, but it reads reads pretty good, for sure. How's how are you making out with uh, with Stanley Krippner's book? Stanley's uh, coming on in about a week and a half, I think. The Voice of Rolling Thunder. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's going pretty good. It's a little bit of a I haven't had too much time to to read it, but I can tell that's going to be a good one too, and that's going to be one I'm going to want to pass on to uh, to some friends of mine, especially friends in the kind of you know like native energy healing type type stuff. What's the kind of outline of it so far? Was there like a prologue or anything that kind of? Uh, yeah, I was talking about the history of uh, of Rolling Thunder and and uh, what was going on with him and Stanley Krippner and the family and that back in the like sixties and seventies. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to Stanley Krippner. He's coming on on June eleventh, so yeah, he he should be an interesting conversation. Yeah, he's been around a long time and experienced an awful lot of things down the way, so. And we also have Robbie Graham coming up, I hope. Um, I can't wait to chat with him. He's the silver screen saucers guy. We had just happened to mention him actually in our first two episodes, uh, just a coincidence, and he, he wants to come on. Uh, he, he was on uh, Open Minds episode 44 of Spacing Out, actually. That was a really good one. I've heard him a few times, and it's just, I don't know, it's a fascinating subject. Yeah, he's got a real cool website. Everyone should... Uh take a peek at it it's uh www.silverscreensaucers.com i think yeah yeah it's really i was on there the other day and it's just i could spend an afternoon on there no problem oh yeah he was talking about the new uh, will smith movie there after earth i think that came out last night oh i wonder if it's worth seeing will smith is usually pretty good yeah but uh other than that i i can't wait to talk to him that'll be our first overseas interview all right yeah yeah, so that should be fairly exciting. Um, but uh, I suppose on to the man of the hour, uh, Mr. Micah Hanks. Uh, you can find him at uh, com. That's G-R-A-L-I-A-N-R-E-P-O-R-T.com. Uh He's got his own podcast. Uh, the Graylian Report comes out every Tuesday. Um, you can just uh, watch live on his website now too, which is pretty cool, and he's got a chat room. So... Um, one of uh, definitely one of our one of our friends in the industry, that's for sure, eh, Graham? Yeah, and he wrote a couple of books, right? Magic, mysticism, and the molecule, and uh, now the UFO singularity. And he was also a co-organizer of the conference that that we met him at, the Paradigm Symposium, twenty twelve and twenty thirteen. Yeah, which kind of you know that conference is sort of the thing that got this whole ball rolling uh, in a roundabout way. So yeah, pretty pretty funny how 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 quick things can happen sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah. I actually I read Magic, Magic Mysticism and the Molecule. It's a pretty good book. I like. Uh, there's some cool stuff on uh, psychomantiums and shit like that that just blows my mind. Yeah, was, I should. Uh, you have to pass that on to me. Yeah, I've been thinking about trying to make my own sometime, but or like they're talking about some sort of thing that like sends a magnetic field. You put your face into it and shit. It sounds crazy, man. I should yeah. tell. I should tell Mike to bring that to Paradise Symposium. Yeah, yeah. So, and then UFO Singularity. We're going to talk about that book a little bit in the interview, but um, that was a, just a great read. Um, I just finished it. I finished it about 15 or 20 minutes before the interview was supposed to fire up. But uh, <laughs> the interview itself uh, ran, a, I think we started probably an hour and a half or two hours late by the time we had everything figured out. So uh, thanks a lot to Micah for being so uh, so patient with us. Yeah, another guy we might have on is uh, Caleb Hanks, Mike's brother, too. Um, 
Yeah, I was actually tweeting back and forth with him the other day, and he he's interested, so it's just a matter of uh, squeezing him into what is turning out to be a busier and busier schedule. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we'll get to everyone eventually, that's for sure. Um, there's definitely no shortage of people uh, people to talk to, that's for sure. Um, speaking of Paradigm Symposium, I can't wait to go to this year's. Hopefully everything works out there and we can go down and, and see some old friends. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, now uh, we'll have to get Ben and Aaron on eventually here. Hopefully uh, maybe we can get in touch with them and they'll come on the show. Ben and Aaron are the hosts of uh, Mysterious Universe. Yeah. Um, I think they're coming to, Gray- uh, to the uh, Paradigm Symposium again this year. So that, Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. It'll be a big yeah. uh, reunion tour. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to see RPG again too. I th- I think uh, I talked to Red Pill and he's gonna come on before the Kripner interview with us. Oh, okay, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Can't wait to chat with him again. Alrighty, well I guess that that uh, means we should get into uh, the interview or the chat with Micah. Yeah, we might as well uh, take a quick uh, break. We had a, like I say, there's a couple spots where you might notice some technical difficulties. Just uh, <laughs> roll right through them, and and we'll uh, we'll be back after the interview. Welcome back to Grime America. This week, uh, with me as always, we have Graham. How's it going, Graham? I'm doing okay. Uh, pretty excited. We got Micah Hanks on board tonight. We're uh, thrilled to have you, Micah. How you been? Well, it's my pleasure to be here, guys. Hope you guys are doing good. Yeah, I actually just finished your uh, your book about, well, I guess it's been a couple hours now, thanks to the technical gremlins, but <laughs> I, I finished the last two chapters at uh, about 5 o'clock my time. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed them, because I sent them direct to you with cosmic love. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it was great. You know, I, re- I really liked uh, your first book, Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, but um, this one I this one really piqued me big you know- time. Uh, not to say the other one wasn't great, but this one blew me blew me away. Especially the the last half is great. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I mean, it's funny because I've had a lot of people, you know, who said, you know, we we kind of thought you had been pinned as a, uh, you know, as a consciousness researcher, and then you come out with this book, the UFO Singularity, and really just had everybody going, oh wow, this guy knows UFOs just as well. So I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. You know, I I think that really, to date. At very least, the uh, UFO singularity is kind of my seminal research, you know, my seminal book. But um, but you know, it's it's really just an ongoing progression in a, in a in a multitude of interests that I have. 
and interests that I think are all kind of interconnected in, 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 in so many different varieties of ways, whether it has to do with human consciousness or our technological progression as a species, evolution, or if, if you want to call it conscious evolution. You know, all these things, I think, are interrelated. And so, really, it's just the ongoing accumulation of weirdness and my interpretation of the little the lesser-known aspects of human existence, whether it be magic, mysticism, molecule, or the UFO singularity. It's all those things combined and, and, the, and the nature of the human experience underlying all of it. Yeah, I was saying on our last podcast that a lot of times when I listen to authors on podcasts or or on radio shows, and sometimes I feel like I don't need to read their books, and I kind of avoid it. But with yours, I was so glad I read it. Um, it felt like you really picked all my ideas and my my thoughts about ufology out and just like succinctly put put it on paper. It really did feel like uh, it covered a lot of the views that I that I have on the subject. Well, that's because as a, as a post-singularity intelligence in my own right, what I actually managed to do was utilize synthetic telepathy to read your mind <laughs> Yeah, and, and then, Graham, I took your ideas, and I put them down on the printed page. That's so I have you and you alone to thank for all of it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> nice work, Graham. Yeah, thanks, buddy. <laughs> he did a great job with my book, didn't he? <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Um, I liked uh, the one th- – I did have a question about, about USOs. We were just talking uh, on our first go at this podcast about Ivan Sanderson's book, and I did notice that uh, – USOs really wasn't in there um, as a, a subject of ufology. And I wondered okay, if what, that was a conscious decision. Wait, 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 wait. While we're on the you, second of USOs. Okay. Like, now, uh, call it. I was listening to Graylian last night, and I still am going to stand by that Shag Harbor and uh, what's his name? Richard French. Richard French. I still think that's the same same place. Because, you know, there, does it say St. John, Newfoundland, or does it just say St. John? Well, here's what we know. Okay, uh, for those who aren't aware of what we're talking about, uh, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Richard French was an individual who had uh, recently at the Citizens Hearing on Disclosure had uh, given testimony about having observed two UFOs underwater. He said that it was a multiple witness encounter and that many people had been able to observe two UFOs uh, enter, uh, you know, I guess the ocean just shortly off the coast of Newfoundland and that these UFOs had been performing some kind of a maintenance routine where he said these aliens were actually outside the craft underwater and performing some sort of, some sort of like maintenance you know on these on these UFOs presumably disc shaped i don't know that that information was necessarily uh, divulged french claimed that he'd observed the two craft and so i've gotten a lot of emails from people saying well you know this sounds an awful lot like the shag harbor ufo incident now um I feel that it's not necessarily uh, the case that we're talking about two cases that are one and the same. And the reason why is because if we are to understand correctly what the Huffington Post had reported that French had said, he had claimed that he had witnessed something in 1952, or at very least, that's the specific year that the Huffington Post article puts out, but at very least we understand uh, that uh, French had believed that this had taken place during the 1950s sometime. And they observed off the coast of St. John's, which is the capital of Newfoundland, on the east coast of Newfoundland. He had observed two UFOs. Uh, again, I believe, according to his testimony, we were given the impression that this took place during daylight and that he'd said that the water was clear enough that he could see down beneath the water and that he could see these two UFO craft being operated on by what looked like modern alien greys. 
Well, this is a pretty extraordinary story, and so it was so extraordinary that I decided to try and dig into what French was talking about. And so based on the information that was related in the Huffington Post article, uh, the year 1952 was the first year I began with, and I began to look through the Project Blue Book files that were actually released and, and are available for people to actually download and read at bluebookarchive.org. You know, Project Blue Book was a United States Air Force uh, project during which there were actual official inquiries carried out into the UFO, the nature of the UFO enigma, and those files were eventually released to the public and people have access to them. And there have been you know, a number of books that have been published that kind of, you know, filtered the good stuff from the, the Blue Book files down into kind of a readable format and everything. And they were published. One edition was uh, edited by Brad Steiger, the researcher of all different kinds of Fortiana. So... Uh, basically, going back through the 1952 files, I found about five reports. Two of them were identical, and so that really narrows it down to, to four. Three of them all took place on the west coast of Newfoundland near a town called Stephenville, which is interesting because there was a big UFO flap in a town called Stephenville in Texas a number of years ago. But the reason that there would be a lot of UFO reports from the 1950s and 60s emanating from Stephenville Newfoundland is because that was the site of a U.S. Air Force base at the time. I think that the property had been purchased in maybe 1941, and it was kept until 1949 when uh, the Canadian government, as I understand it, had actually purchased the land. But the United States Air Force, which had a base there, was able to continue operating that until a few years later, probably around 1956 or 57 if I remember correctly. So it's only natural, it stands to reason at very least, that UFO reports are going to emanate from near where an Air Force base had been positioned anyway because people are looking up, they have personnel on duty, and they also have the kind of technology via radar. Uh, you know, They've got uh, air traffic control towers and the like. They have a, a variety of different kinds of technological implementations that will make UFO watching uh, more formidable. Whereas on the East Coast, there wasn't all that. But the East Coast is where St. John's is, and there was only one UFO report from the year of 1952 that seemed to match anywhere near the either the West Coast, uh, or rather the East Coast of Newfoundland. And that incident took place at a location that was about three hours' drive time from St. John's, so that one didn't even seem to match either. Now, when we talk about where St. John's, which is what specifically, based on the information in the Huffington Post article that cited Richard French's uh, testimony on this incident, not only did he mention 1952, and I even thought to myself, maybe 1952 wasn't the right year, maybe it wasn't even during the 1950s, but what we know is that he said that this incident that he observed, where he saw two submerged UFO craft underwater performing some sort of a maintenance routine of some sort, he said this took place off the coast of... Newfoundland near St. John's. Guys, as the crow flies, that is no less than 600 miles away, probably more from Shag Harbor. And the Shag Harbor incident, rather than taking place in the 1950s at any time, it took place in 1967. Yeah. And that was the same year that Richard French was mentioned in John Keel's Mothman Prophecies, <laughs> attending a woman's house and trying to drink a bowl of jello that was handed to him because he complained of having stomach problems. So for those who say that there's a similarity to an inside Navy account of the Shag Harbor incident, I say, well, but, you know, it may indeed be the case, but if that's the case, we've been given a lot of bad information, and that information that was bad would have to be the date, the location, and frankly, a lot having to do with Lieutenant Richard Colonel's uh, supposed, uh, you know, uh, uh, position with the Air Force at the time, which in the 1950s would not have been Lieutenant Colonel. In fact, by 1967, as mentioned by John Keel, he was still going by, I believe he was just going by Lieutenant uh, Richard French, so he hadn't even been 
uh, upgraded. As a matter of fact, actually, he wasn't lieutenant. I'm sorry, he was Major Richard French, and that's how he introduced himself in May of 1967 as related in John Gill's Mothman prophecies. So at the time, he wasn't even a lieutenant colonel, which was one step above major. He was still introducing himself as Major uh, Richard French. So none of the stories, none of the two, rather, none of the aspects of the two stories add up, and it's easy for people to kind of peripherally look at these two cases and say, well, it sounds a little like Shag Harbor. That's probably what he was talking about. If he really was a blue book debunker, and if he claimed to have witnessed UFO craft submerged off the coast of Newfoundland, Shag Harbor, or any place, the two stories, if we're to take him seriously, have to match up. And at presently, based on my research and what I've been able to find based on others' research, none of it adds up. So, frankly, I'm still very skeptical of Richard French, but what we do know is that at very least by 1967, which was the year that the Shag Harbor incident took place, we do know that John Keel had already encountered cases where people were claiming they were having encounters with a guy calling himself Richard French. And if it had been Shag Harbor that he had been involved with, you know, we have to also take into consideration the possibility that A, he got the date wrong, or B, the wrong date was given to or reported by the Huffington Post. And that's that's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> See, now I, I'll give you a C is that French is still trying to, he's just trying to fuck over our best Canada's best UFO story. <laughs> he's disinformationing us. No, you know actually, okay, Darren, you're totally right. I I've thought about that too because how better to instill confusion amidst the community than to be a former Project Blue Book didn't uh, literally i mean what he said he did was he went out there and he, he essentially dumbed down the reports and was a debunker so how better to continue perpetrating disinformation than to go out there and what is it 40 years later continue to offer disinformation maybe he's still just doing his job yeah that's that's what i'm saying because i'm actually i've got an affinity kind of for shag harbor that's one of my favorite uh favorite cases oh it's incredible and and you know what's so cool is that we were talking about usos earlier un, uh, you know uh, unidentified submerged objects i've heard the acronym switched around a bit you know underwater submerged objects different things like that but uh the shag harbor incident uh you know after the 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 object was allegedly seen crashing into the ocean uh, you know, some accounts actually dis- detail how the the object that entered Shag Harbor was also tracked on radar, and uh, and then that there was indeed a second object that joined it. So yeah, there are again, I'll admit that there are similarities to what Richard French has said, but I think it's interesting because there's a lot of USO type activity that's related to the Shag Harbor incident, and furthermore. I think that because of the similarity between the two, uh, Antonio Huneus of Open Minds had been one of the very individuals who had said, I believe Graham and I both got to catch up with him a bit out there in uh, in February in Arizona, but Antonio has questioned whether Richard French may be uh, you know, a legitimate individual whose interest in and knowledge of UFO reports from over the years has not maybe colored his own recollection of encounters and experiences that he's had maybe in his old age. Having come, you know, uh, to to understand a lot about ufology and, and and to have a general knowledge of a lot of the better cases, maybe he took aspects from the the, the uh, case at Shag Harbor, and maybe he integrated that into his own quote unquote. I'm putting the air quotes up recollections, if you will. So uh, you know, there's so many levels of, of of things that could be completely innocent, but nonetheless could still be effectively misinformation. And so with with regard to Richard French, I don't think we'll ever really know the truth. 
But uh, the Shag Harbor incident, on the other hand, nonetheless remains one of the most fascinating cases of both UFO and USO activity. There was even a Russian submarine <laughs> uh, involved in that, and an intercept mission between uh, the, 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 uh, the, I guess, what it would have, technically, I guess it would have been the military uh, officers involved, the naval teams that were involved in the dive, and then, of course, eventually uh, an intercept mission with a Russian submarine, which many have asserted ended up being kind of a distraction from the dive operation involving what they believe was a crashed or submerged object there at Shag Harbor. So, yeah, that that's a really good one. And, and people, if they want a general idea about what the Shag Harbor incident entails, they can get on Wikipedia and just do a search for the Shag Harbor UFO incident. It's just how it's spelled S-H-A-G, Shag Harbor. Shag, baby, yeah! You know? <laughs> yeah, Did, yeah. Right. Didn't, didn't French also say that it was uh, 200 feet down? Like, no, that, no, it was only... T- oh, yeah, did he? Well, no, I, I think I he could, said it was 200 feet down, and he could see clearly through the water. I mean, has anybody tried on the East Coast to see any <laughs> any know, further down than, know, like, I 10 think, feet? In the I think well, it was 25 feet. It, it, seems, it seems to me that the water oh, was sure? not... Okay. Yeah, it seems to me that the water was not very deep. But again, you know... That story, I mean, I'm sorry, even if the water was was 10 feet deep, uh, you know, him saying that he was, I mean, where was he in proximity to, I mean, even to be able to see these UFOs uh, being operated on at, at a depth of 10 or 20 feet, I mean, presumably you'd have to be right over them. So was he in a boat? Uh, was he standing on a pier? You know, how was Richard French able to be able to look into the water and see aliens operate on a, operating on a craft underwater? I mean, there are so many aspects of the story that just sound absolutely absurd to me. Richard French, to my knowledge, never said that he had been a part of a Navy dive team that had gone down there and helped these aliens or had been close enough to see them. Now, what's interesting is that in relation to, uh, you know, unidentified submerged objects or USOs, um, the Russian Navy released their documents on UFO phenomenon a few years ago. And what they'd said was that more than 50% of all their encounters with UFO craft took place underwater. Now, part of me wants to say, uh, you know, no shit, Sherlock, because, I mean, come on, they're the Navy. And so they're going to be not not always underwater, but, I mean, you'd have to say, I mean, come on, what other defense uh, organization, you know, from government to government is going to carry it, you know, if, if not most of, at least, you know, a, a good portion of their military operations underwater. Now, all kidding aside, sure, it seems that a naval organization would have a lot of UFO encounters that took place underwater if these things are capable of going underwater, and that seems to be the, the portion of this that's no dice, but... But what's interesting is that in the actual reports that they that they detail, some of the things that they said were just absolutely phenomenal. Lake Baikal, for instance, is the largest landlocked lake anywhere in Russia. And the, the Russian Navy carries out a lot of its diving operations there because of the fact that it's a large landlocked lake. Um, in their Russian naval documents pertaining to UFO and USO phenomenon, what they had talked about experiencing at Lake Baikal had been that they had, during a dive, a routine dive training mission at a particular depth of a few hundred feet underwater, had apparently seen bright flashes and all different kinds of things happening. In another instance, they had seen what looked like diminutive humanoids without diving suits with silvery kind of like spandex-looking suits and that they were at this incredible depth of several hundred feet under the the surface of Lake Baikal, the Russian dive team never indicated the cause of death. All they say is that there were deaths that resulted 
as the divers attempted to pursue these diminutive humanoid beings and try and find out who they had been or what they were doing. And so, you know, all this had been allegedly disclosed in the Russian documentation. And I'd even, I have a friend who had been former, uh, you know, NSA, and he'd worked with different organizations and things uh, many, many, many years ago. And so what his primary uh, uh, position was, uh, is he had been a, a Russian linguist. And so this individual, I'd asked him, I'd said, you know, uh, you, could you try and find those documents and, and literally just look at what is being said and tell me if in English language it really is what the American tabloids, you know, and I say tabloids in the in the old sense of the word because a lot of different news agencies were carrying this story, not just the weekly world news, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. But I, but I was interested enough to try and find out if it was a legitimate report and not just something that was made up or not something that the English version of the Pravda news source out of Russia maybe was releasing because, you know, you, you have to take a lot of what comes out of Russia with a grain of salt and surprising. See, now, I, I, uh, I'm, I come from the, the angle that I don't think we really do have to take what comes out of Russia with so much salt. I think uh, that's part of kind of the media making it easy not to trust Russia. Well, you know, you could look at it both ways. But I think that, the you know, for me, the way that I would hope to go about this, actually the only way that we could truly know is to learn the Russian language and go read it for ourselves. But, you know, I've relied on a lot of different researches over the years. If it's something in the Spanish language, you know, uh, Red Pill Junkie, of course, of Daily Grail, Grailian Report, Intrepid Mag, and now, as I understand, uh, Mysterious Universe and Grimerica as well during the podcasts. But... <laughs> Yeah, Red Pill Junkie, of course, you know, being a, you know, a man of, of, of Spanish-speaking lineage, but also Javier Ortega of Ghost Theory. And, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, Russian linguists, you know, I've got a number of those who I've worked with over the years just as well. Um, I've got people who speak Portuguese, you know, and people who, uh, you know, have mastery of languages that include French and, and other languages, and even just really the study of language and even, you know, the, the, the study of historical Indo-European proto-language and things like that. I mean, I've got a lot of people in, in academia who never would come forward in, in public forums and talk about this sort of thing and certainly would never, ever give their names out, but who work directly with me because they recognize that for whatever reason, they, 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 they feel that uh, what I do is of merit. And so I, I, and I think that a lot of researchers like me have contacts like that. Uh, you know, I, I have my own little network and uh, and these are just contacts I've built up over the years. So so I go to these people, and when someone says the Russian Navy has released their documents, I try and get somebody out there and say, look, can we find those documents? And if they're accessible, can we download them and read them and see what they actually said, and not just what the news says? You know. But again, how do you know unless you can speak that language yourself? Sometimes those language barriers are more crippling, I think, than especially in Western culture than we uh, tend to uh, to recognize. Hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, well, English is slowly taken over. Maybe Star Trek got that one right too. While <laughs> we speak in English in uh, a couple hundred years. <laughs> there you go. That's what it's going to be. We're all going to be speaking Klingon. I mean English. That's one thing I, I really, you know, I respect people like Red Pill Junkie and and folks like him that can speak multiple languages and do it so well. Like, I can speak a little French. Like, if I was stuck in France or something, I could probably get myself some chow in a hotel room. Right, but other than that, I, I've I have a real problem trying to pick up uh, pick up foreign tongues. I have the same issue. You know, uh, I'm more well versed in Spanish language than anything, uh, and second to that, French only because I tried to learn, but I'm no good at all at French. 
and uh, and it's such a beautiful language not to be any good at. But uh, you know that, that's the thing is that uh, you know a, a colleague of mine years ago turned me on to an article, uh, not an article, it's actually an essay published in book form by a researcher named Ernst Cassier called uh, "Language and Myth," which essentially divulges the idea that our very concepts of reality as humans may be intricately connected to the symbolism that we append to words that we create and that language in itself could literally serve almost as an intermediary between what we perceive as the real world and how our brain interprets it, which comes to a a fundamentally interesting concept that I think that we have to discuss, which is that we humans think we understand everything. It reminds me of something that Dennis McKenna once said, that he and a a number of individuals had taken ayahuasca, the famous yage tea that is brewed in the South American Amazon, and uh, apparently, uh, you know, of course, certain varieties of, of ayahuasca are uh, are orally active because of DMT combined with uh, monoamine oxidase A inhibitors that are found in the Liana Banisteriopsis capi plant, which is the common uh, ingredient that's contained in all these different varieties. And while Dennis and his colleagues were essentially tripping on ayahuasca, they were they were basically uh, transformed into water molecules and brought through a great big plant and allowed to experience photosynthesis. And as they were coming out of the experience, uh, Dennis said that they heard a voice say, uh, "You monkeys only think you're in charge," as though <laughs> as though the spirit. I'm, act- I'm actually waiting on his book in the mail right now. I can't wait till it gets here. Well, I'll tell you, I hope you guys have a chance to talk with Dennis McKenna. Of course, his brother Terrence, the late Terrence McKenna, wrote the book Food of the Gods, which was just an absolutely innovative uh, work in this field, which, you know, Dennis and uh, and, and Terrence's work as ethnobotanists was very instrumental in my own research, which uh, began to kind of contribute to at least one aspect of the three portions that comprise Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, my first book. Uh, I've, I've always had a very sincere interest in entheogens and ethnobotany, or entheobotany even, you know, the, the study of uh, entheogens or God-releasing plants. But the reason I bring all that up is because, you know, again, I think a lot of our perception of reality is rooted in a very tragically anthropomorphized Viewpoint, And sometimes I think that we have to try and escape from the idea that humans are the supreme be-all, end-all, and that human perception is going to allow us a full understanding of the known universe. Reality, as perceived by humans, could be very different from the universe that actually exists out there. And there could very well be aspects of the known universe, or the unknown universe in this instance, that exist outside the bounds of human perception. And we have to accept that as a possibility. We have to take all these things into consideration and and wonder as to whether, A, alien life could exist that literally operates on a level or a dimensional space or a a level of existence or or perception that literally exceeds the capabilities of humans' physical ability to perceive. We have to think about all these kinds of things. We have to think about whether there could be life forms here on planet Earth that operate intelligently in such capacities that evade human perception, just like plants might do. And as was apparently indicated to Dennis and Terrence McKenna, so all those things should be taken into consideration. Have you ever have you ever heard a psychedelic? Fuck, what's it called? Psychedelic salon. Psychedelic salon. I have not. No. It's a podcast. Uh, you can search it in iTunes, and it's all. It's just like every week they release like um, 
just lectures from this like every second one is terrence mckenna and fucking some of them just blow my mind we're actually we've got dennis mckenna coming on uh the beginning of july oh that'll be fantastic man you know i'll have to check that out so is it psychedelic salon you said yeah psychedelic salon yeah tons of terrence mckenna lectures that guy is he was so far ahead of his time oh totally totally uh you know how you are you guys familiar with his book food of the gods I haven't read it yet, but I'm planning on it. I want to. I, I've I've been reading a lot lately about his stoned ape theory. Yeah, the stone. And I think I'm going to order his book. I almost like I had like when I was going. I, I had such a hard time finding. Uh, fuck, what's it called? The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. <laughs> I love the title. I was you know? <laughs> having such a hard time finding it in Canada. And then I finally found it on this one website, and, you know, they had, like, you know, if I bought four, I got one of them for free. And so I had all of these books picked out, but in the end, uh, reality kicked in, and I could only order the one. But I definitely want to read them. I, his stoned ape theory absolutely fascinates me. It made me want to go on a mushroom trip this summer, I'm pretty sure, is in the books. Well, you know what? what uh, McKenna had, uh, speaking about Terrence here, because, again, you know, he's long gone in the uh, physical sense, but Dennis is still with us. But Terrence, uh, I, although I think the brothers actually traveled together uh, and, and carried out a lot of their field work as ethnobotanists, but, um, but uh, Terrence McKenna, uh, you know, had essentially postulated, uh, first of all, we have to look at ancient cultures and what appeared to be not only the totems of ancient culture and literally the institution of columns and pillars and things like that, especially in ancient Greece, but also the the formation of this architectural uh, facet alongside the institution of cattle cults and things like that. Why? And even today in so many religions are the are cows. We, we have that expression, what is your sacred cow? And think about that. Uh, you know, there are so many references to cattle as being sacred animals. The bovine, what about the bovine is so sacred? Is it because it is the giver of milk or the provider of meat, at, at least as far as the butcher shop goes? You know, or could it be that there's something else? And so I think one of the early theories that Kent McKenna and others have proposed over the years involves the notion that literally humankind in the during the process and throughout the process of domestication of cattle when we were living alongside these creatures think about it you know where do magic mushrooms grow where you know psilocybin being the active ingredient here where do the the, the popular magic mushrooms grow they grow in cow fields you know on, on cow pies and so the idea had been that early on uh early humans who were probably uh, omnivorous to an extent you know opportunistic feeders would come across uh, mushrooms growing in fields where cattle were being herded, and they thought, well, you know, we'll give it a shot, and they try eating these things, and boom! And there's this incredible entheogenic experience, which was not only mind-altering, but maybe even, to an extent, mind-expanding and consciousness-expanding. Now, now think about this, too. Now, this is what's really interesting, and this is something else that McKenna talked about. You know, when you look at... The, molecule, the molecular structure of, of mushrooms, you know, there, there's what's typically called a 5-pyrrole indole molecule, I believe, and I think that McKenna pointed out that a lot of fungi, if not the majority of them, or maybe all of them, uh, have what, are, what is called a 4-pyrrole indole. I'll talk about this in the book. And uh, McKenna says that everything about the odd differential between most matter, most organic compounds on Earth versus uh, mushrooms on the molecular level 
and the differences between the two, everything about mushrooms screams that they are artificially manufactured. And furthermore, mushroom spores can exist and you know sometimes do so for long periods, maybe indefinitely, uh, in the vacuum of space. They could conceivably travel maybe on a space rock, survive the, 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 the turmoil and the, and the, and the, and the absolute uh, extremities of travel through the vacuum throughout space, land on planet Earth, and still sprout into fungi. And so McKenna's theory had been that, for all we know, mushrooms could be, although apparently biological, but different from other kinds of biology here on planet Earth, they could be something that is essentially uh, organic but inorganic outside of Earth and therefore something that was perhaps manufactured and sent to us as a veritable <laughs> substance that would serve the same purpose as essentially the monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey. We touch it, it brings intelligence, and it brings a wild and bold new reality to humankind and very well could have been, if the stone date theory is of any merit, it could have been the very acting factor. Introduction to humankind and, and expansive visionary trips with psilocybin mushrooms, that could have been the very instigating factor in the expansion of consciousness that led to abstract thinking and then eventually the rudiments of human culture. So we may have everything to owe to mushrooms, at least according to McKenna. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Very fascinating. Isn't DMT even one molecule away from tryptophan or something like that? Yeah, they're close chemical um, cousins. They really yeah. are. Yeah, dimethyltryptamine, you know, again, you have a lot of different things that are produced in the body that chemically are very similar to one another. Tryptophan, of course, which is an enzyme that's brought into the body, you know, for instance, when you eat turkey meat and things like that, and uh, it it contributes to the, the, you know, wanting to take a nap after you eat turkey. Uh, But but also, it's chemically similar to melatonin just as well, and and there are so many different little, uh, you know, syntheses that can occur within the body. Serotonin, in fact, which which directly regulates mood and governs people's attitudes and mood and, mood and whatnot, uh, is also chemically similar. And what's interesting is that serotonin governs mood and, and certain things like that. Melatonin governs sleep and sex drive, all these kinds of things. Tryptophan, of course, you know, being a, you know a tryptamine, I suppose, that is synthesized from proteins when you consume meat and all these different kinds of things. None of these things seem to have the powerful visionary capacity that dimethyltryptamine does. And yet they're almost chemically, I mean, they're, they're literally, you know, maybe a couple of, what is it, what is, is it called a hydroxyl molecule? I'm not sure specifically about, you know, every aspect of the molecular function here. I'm not a, a cell microbiologist or, or a chemist or anything along those lines, but I can certainly tell you that chemically DMT is similar to melatonin, serotonin, and, uh, and a number of other different things that are present in the body. And that's probably what's most unique about DMT is that it is probably the most powerful hallucinogen known to man. Uh, known to man. And it's also it's, 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 it's kind of revered for being so, so uh, or having such a visionary capacity. McKenna talked about it just as well in talking about going into the D- DMT hyperspace and finding this to be a kind of reality that's more real than the real reality and that it's inhabited. But uh, DMT is also very much something that is produced right within our own bodies. And so how is it that it's illegal? Think about this. It's an illegal substance that's produced within your body. <laughs> and so the, the, the theory is, and this is what McKenna and Dr. Richard, Richard Strassman and many others over the years have talked about, could dimethyltryptamine be something that if the right metabolic pathways were induced within the body that an endogenous release of it, in other words, an internal release of dimethyltryptamine, DMT, 
could that occur within the body? Uh, and could people who maybe are focused, you know, transcendental meditation experts and people who focus on meditation and, you know, raising their vibration or altered states of consciousness and inducing those states, could people who are who are adept at this kind of transcendental science, if you will, could those people literally be instigating a release of dimethyltryptamine, a powerful hallucinogen that alters their state of mind within their body and something that is nonetheless also when induced externally is is extremely illegal and potentially dangerous it's it's really <laughs> it's really almost more bizarre than fiction yeah like you cannot make shit like that up <laughs> it's I'm, one in a million i i think i've never i've never gone down that road but i'm really like these last few last couple of years i've been really on the fence there's a lot of uh I think there's an increased uh, awareness about that in our culture right now, too. I'm, I'm interested to see where that's going to go in the next five or ten years. You know, there's so many people going down to, to Peru now. I mean, I have a few friends of mine that are going down there, and um, it's really – it seems to be expanding the consciousness to some sort of our culture right now. It, it certainly does, you know, and I think that – I mean, without getting – you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to the New Age approach to things. You know, uh, Hillary Ramo, another uh, – talk show hosted recently asked me about you know how i connected to the spiritual and i said you know it's a funny question and i'm i'm not asked that a whole lot now graham and i personally have you know discussed this a bit you know uh you know when we've been hanging out at conferences and things like that but uh but for me uh you know i think that i've got a hyper analytical kind of mode of thought uh which is entirely scientific and really largely skeptical if not entirely skeptical there are some days where I wake up and I think there's no way that there's anything paranormal about ghosts. There's nothing paranormal about UFOs or cryptozoology. And, and you know, I may not go so far as to say that, you know, to borrow the old skeptical adage, you know, of, of modern skepticism that, you know, people just make stuff up. You know, I, I nonetheless am very skeptical of a lot of the strange phenomenon. Then there is the spiritual side where I say maybe all these things exist, but it has more again to do with, you know, if not the limitations of human perception, maybe it has more to do with variances from individual to individual in the ability to perceive this or that or anything uh, from person to person, and that maybe we all do perceive reality on slightly different levels of perception, relative to still within within the grand scheme of things, relative to humanity on the whole. But nonetheless, each human could have slightly different, uh, you know, capabilities which may bring into question such things as ESP, altered states of consciousness, God knows what else. And, and, and at times yeah. also things that are uh, you know, medically defined as being uh, you know, mental illness just as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, looking at all those kinds of things, I think you know, I really, and coming back around to what Hillary Ramo had said, my response to her question was, you know, I look at it like this. I have two aspects of my own individual my hyper-analytical, skeptical, scientific side, and then there's my spiritual side. And those can exist alongside one another just like separate operating systems on partitions on one hard drive, if you will. Tomorrow. Do you think so? It's not hard to separate sometimes, though? It is. No, well, I think that's the next step of evolution is finally being able to separate those things. And you see more and more of it every day. Um, you, you, uh, I don't know the best way to go about it, but... You you kind of see a lot of people who are, who are a lot closed minded, even like re- religious groups. And like the perfect example is the Catholic Church coming out and saying it's okay if there's UFOs. Right. There's like a global shift to acceptance to 
almost every avenue right now, be it meditation or even, even ayahuasca. I mean, shit like that is ten, 10 years ago, they wouldn't let you hear about that, which is another thing that, that can only be attributed to the internet and the spread of free information. Yeah, and this gets in a, a bit into the realm of what we uh, discussed uh, a little bit earlier off the microphone, which was, you know, it, it is an exciting time. You know, in, in the recent book that I've written, The UFO Singularity, I talk about how technology will, I think, uh, better our attempts at reconciling with strange phenomena around us. Now, I specifically gear that subject matter in that book toward ufology, but I think that that applies to a variety of of different kinds of strange phenomena. Mm-hmm. And, and, if, and if anything, I think that really, again, this is an incredibly uh, exciting time because, I mean, something that we were talking about, you know, Darren and I, I think, earlier was that we, we can use an iPhone. You, you can take a smartphone. You can download apps onto your smartphone that allow you to track everything from satellites to the International Space Station, you know, to other different kinds of natural phenomena, weather, weather systems, uh, systems and things like this. In other words... We're getting very close to being able to carry little scientific multi-detectors around in our pockets that are constantly, invariably connected to the World Wide Web, which is really kind of like a matrix, if you will, that connects all humans to one another. Before long, you know, and this gets into the realm of the singularity discussion here, when we have direct brain-to-computer interfaces, or rather we have a little connection or better yet a wi-fi connection that is made between our brains and the devices carried around in our phone do we need the phone do we is the phone going to be a little miniaturized uh you know co- computational component that we wear on our wrist or, or better yet it's implanted somewhere in us and we communicate directly via what we would call today telepathy with that and we can communicate telepathically utilizing that electronic medium with people around us or people on the other side of the world i might decide that i want to communicate with my implant and contact Darren, you know, halfway across the world and say, Grimes, Grimes, wake up, you know? <laughs> yeah, I want, I want mine to be a ring. So, like, remember, like, the old school fucking Hercules commercials where he, like, holds up his ring and, like, shit, the rings pop off the top of it? Yeah. That's what I want. That's my, that'll be mine. I don't need an implant. Just give me a big old Hercules ring. <laughs> Well, you know, we're getting close to however you want it to manifest. You know, we're getting close to having that kind of technology. And that's both uh, exciting, but it's but it's also terrifying. You know, I'm I'm someone who's recently been bitching a lot about the uh, the what I perceive as being the police state, okay, or the surveillance state, you know. I got rear-ended like three uh, weeks ago, and I called, uh, you know, traffic, uh, or rather a highway patrol. And uh, literally, I, I'd been returning from a gig because a lot of, Folks who, who who follow my work, they know I'm a musician as well. And I was re- returning from a wedding. Um, I was rear-ended, and the guys hit and run. They basically slammed into me, and they took off. And so I followed them because <laughs> there were no witnesses. There was nobody else on the road and, and except for the car in front of us, which happened to be my brother and the bass player. So I followed these guys, get their license tag information. Uh, I call my brother, and he manages they as soon as he gets on the interstate just ahead of us these guys swerve around him they're trying to get away pretty quickly and they follow and 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 confirm the license tag number so i had witnesses i got the their license information and thought okay well you know if they have insurance i'll report them i I call uh the uh the highway patrol and file a a report and uh i basically get slapped on the wrist for not calling 911 and being a citizen slave (laughs) and sitting there and waiting for them to show up and uh 
and and have me fill out a questionnaire in the rain while the bad guys, quote unquote, got away. And, and I said do nothing about it. And do nothing about it. And I said, you know, folks, with all due respect, if I hadn't followed them and done what I did and gotten witness corroboration, I couldn't have proven what happened. And they said, well, okay, sure. We'll have somebody call you here in a few minutes. And, of course, they never called back. And after follow-ups, I was never able to get them to even even to return my phone calls to uh, to form, formalize the complaint, even though I had information about people who had caused damage to property for me. So all that to say, you know, I, I, I recognize the concerns that people have with a quote-unquote surveillance slash police state in which, you know, the citizenry is basically monitored and even at times harassed. And, and boy, I tell you, the, the officer that gave me the speeding ticket yesterday, and yes, that really happened, you know that that guy he was he was he literally laughed when i said but officer i was going the same speed as everybody else in fact the person in the car with me said the same thing he he was going the same speed as everybody else he laughs and he goes well you know that doesn't change the fact that you're going faster than the speed limit and he pulls me over and gives me a ticket when you're not when when it conveniences the 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 state if you will if it's a convenience to them yeah you'll get pulled over and fined you know and then your you know appearance in court and the court fees that you pay will go towards you know the judge's uh, you know tenure or whatever or not tenure but uh, his uh, retirement fund or whatever you know it, it's it's wonderful how that works and how when you are in a position where you know, you need help. They won't do jack for you. But if you have citizen, if you've stepped out of line, by God, they're quick to tell you that you've done it. And so I recognize the concerns that would arise around the spread of technology for purposes of misuse, because even without singularity style technologies, I feel that we are in a, in a, in a state in America. And of course, you guys, I don't believe that you're in America right now, but, you know, we'll say North America for the, at the very least, wherever you are in the world surveillance and the police state you know things are very different from how they used to be and it's getting to a point where we have to really take into consideration in the orwellian context whether there is an overreach of power by our governments uh you know i'm not someone who advocates violence i'm not a a person who advocates fringe views per se but i I think i'll i'll I'll, you know nonetheless speak out and say you know I, i get really upset when you know, the, the servants of the public aren't serving the public. They're harassing the public. And when you need them to do a damn thing for you, they won't do it. You know, that's a problem. So when you when you implement technology that furthers the reach of a potentially tyrannical government, yeah, there are certainly problems. And that said, I don't want to come across as someone, when I talk about singularity and the advancements of technology, although I'm very optimistic and I try to be optimistic about all this and say it's going to be good and there are a lot of potentials to gain I realize, and I'm not so naive as to think that there are not downfalls just as well and that we should be incredibly wary just as well of synthetic telepathy or technologies that could literally bridge those gaps between human thought uh, you know, that, that is shared on a nonverbal level or anything else that would extend beyond natural levels of human perception. Yeah, that's why that's why I think the singularity is such a, a, a perfect term for it because, I mean, I think... Uh, what they define it basically is the point at which we we can't see past. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the creation of intelligence that exceeds human intelligence. But Werner Vinge had been the uh, the science fiction writer who, in 1983, I believe, uh, had had coined the term technological singularity, and he had been evoking the, you know a similar terminology that is used for the event horizon of a black hole, after which our you know, beyond this point, if you will, our concept of physics breaks down. And so what, what Vinge had talked about had 
entailed uh, you know a point beyond which we could not conceptualize and much the same technological singularity of the coming decade you know the creation of artificial intelligence and a world of of synthetic intelligences and perhaps even elements of synthetic reality that extend beyond human perception and natural levels of human intelligence it's very much an event horizon and beyond that we cannot conceptualize where humankind as we know it today will fit into that grand scheme of things so yeah it is very much a singularity and you're right there and it's a that's the perfect term for it yeah it's so fucking perfect because not only is it all of that it's also the point of which there is in my view anyway no return it's going to get to a point that we we're not in control of it anymore well most certainly so with the with the technology of uh of what's in the in the black world being like they say thirty forty years ahead of what's in the commercial world. How how close do you think? I mean, it, singularity could be nearer than we think. Uh, yeah, Graham, you're absolutely one hundred percent right. See, that's the whole thing is that uh, the, the leading futurologists of today talk about this technological singularity and say we're a couple of decades away. Whereas, and I think a lot of people try and discount the idea of there being a a, a world of black budgets black ops, black projects and things that are privately funded. Look, let's just look at it. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to get way out there for a minute here. Um, there, There's money that goes missing from the U.S. budget on an annual basis. And and despite the fact that... Trillions. Are, trillions of dollars. And, the, and despite the fact that the IRS, as we now know, can spy on groups who... And, you know, it's not just liberal or conservative. They're also... The, the, the IRS was also... Um, basically, they've been to date. They've only been smacked on the wrist, if that, for spying also on educational groups and any kind of groups, right, left, center, anything that express you know uh, discontentment with government. Um, we've seen the Department of Justice under Eric Holder in the United States watching the Associated Press, watching Fox News, watching other news agencies. You know, and and not only watching people who work for those agencies, but the family members of people who work for those news agencies. You know, we've got the Benghazi situation over there, where we we allegedly have been lied to about what was actually going on, and people were going on the Sunday talk shows after, you know, uh, the the official information about Benghazi was coming out, despite the fact that intelligence officials who were going on the Sunday shows, I believe Susan Rice was the actual uh, individual by name to mention here, who had gone on and said that a YouTube video had sparked uh, unrest in the Arab world. Uh, contrary to that, she had been briefed prior to going on those television programs that there was no video that had spiked this and that this was, you know, in fact, uh, you know, a, a group of extremists. And, uh, you know, I, I actually downloaded the, uh, the, uh, the, the New York Times bestselling report on Benghazi, uh, which Matthew Van Dyke uh, I guess you would call him a soldier of fortune. He's right now involved in the Syria conflict, and he had been in Libya before that. Uh, he was an informant to that. And it's funny because when we went on the Graylian Report and we talked about those three things, Matthew Van Dyke started following us on, on Twitter shortly thereafter. Uh, you know, again, technology is com- connecting al- aspects of the world and people and individuals around the world in ways that it never did beforehand. But all that to say, where I'm going with that is that, you know, people don't think that, that there isn't, hubris politically and and socially and that these individuals and these people in in areas of government don't withhold information or outright lie to individuals target specific groups and individuals you know just for having a conversation like this tonight guys and thinking outside the box if we talk about things like dimethyltryptamine altered states of consciousness ufos and black budgets you know you're gonna end up on you're gonna end up on somebody's list and and that's just and that's i don't think that that's that's probably why my fucking 
recorder isn't working. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm telling you, I don't think it's beyond the pale. I don't think it's. I don't think it's. Uh, absolute absurdity to assert those kinds of things and anyone who says do you really think there are black budgets i'll tell you right now in addition to the money that goes missing from government in addition to the lies that we were fed as i've outlined just a few instances of right here uh, and in addition to the uh (laughs) the historical precedent set for ties between organized crime and government operations racketeering uh covert ops uh you know wars and other the uh, drug war yeah, and wars and military conflicts, especially on part of the United States, that are waged outside the jurisdictions of official constitutional declaration of war. If you really want me, and this is my rebuttal to people who say, you really believe in a black budget? Well, I would say, do you really expect me to believe, based on what I know and the historical precedents that we already have at our disposal, that there isn't a black budget? And furthermore, do you not, and, and, and I'll tell you this, I think a lot of the black budget, in truth, goes into uh, aspects of... Uh, what we perceive as paranormal phenomena at times, whether it be you know from clandestine aircraft and different kinds of secret projects that involve uh, highly advanced physics and avionics and things like that, to uh, you know maybe more mundane everyday political engineering. I mean, th- there are aspects of our reality that, as we know it, that are completely and fully and totally engineered. And here's and- my theory on the black budget. Sure, everybody's got a black budget. Every fucking person <laughs> on my street has a black budget. You know what my black budget is? <laughs> Cigarettes and grass. That's the shit that I buy that I try and hide from everybody else. <laughs> so if I've got a black budget, I'm sure Graham's got a black budget. I'm sure Mike has got a black budget. You know, some guys have their whiskey. Some guys have this, you know, down the line. Whether it be so if, something if everyone else has a black budget, why wouldn't the government? In other words, in other words, yeah, you're almost evoking the idea of the sin tax, or maybe not so much a sin tax, but essentially, uh, you know, grandma doesn't. You don't want grandma to know that you drink liquor, and so you don't tell grandma that you buy liquor, but you buy, you know, copious amounts of it. Uh, much the same, the world governments don't want us to know that they're doing this, 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 and this with the left hand, and so they show us only what the right hand is doing. And, again, there's a very selective release of information through Freedom of Information Act requests and things like this. And that's the whole thing is that I think, uh, you know, to bring this into the realm of ufology, again, so to speak, um, I think that it's important to ask questions. A lot of people have criticized me for going after Richard French, for instance, who had, uh, again, given testimony at the Citizens Hearing on on, uh, Disclosure. They've gone after me for, for criticizing French. And, and and well actually I haven't I haven't really been critical of him. I've just said based on what he says, he's making some extraordinary claims. Where is the information that backs this up? And so after going and looking for it, he said he worked for Project Blue Book. Well the the Blue Book files were released decades ago. They are maintained in their entirety online. So if that's where he said he went and that's where he said that he worked why not go and look at those files and try and find information that corroborates with what he said? And yet, would you believe that there have been people who have attacked me and said, you idiot, you dumb ass. Seriously, Mike Hanks, you, you are a moron, and here's why. Because if you think that this guy working for a secret element of the government is going to have files that were released that tell every little bit about what he did, you, then you're a, you're a dumb ass. I mean, and, and, and that's the whole thing is I'm thinking, but he said he worked for Blue Book. 
if he said he worked for Blue Book, then are we doing ourselves a disservice by spending the time to go and look and see if the files are where he essentially basically just told us that they were and where we'd find them? Hello? <laughs> you know? And so, now, granted, I, I don't discount the fact that there are going to be aspects that are, uh, you know, whether it be to, you know, with regard to black budgets or secret covert ops, government projects, Project Blue Book, UFO, you know, whatever. I think a lot is kept from the general public. A lot is withheld uh indefinitely and never released but to presume that that's the case without going and looking is just intellectual stupidity you know yeah. it's 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 limiting yourself and and basically it's, it's 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 if anything it's laziness on terms of well i'm going to assume that i know the answer without actually going and doing the research get up off your ass and go do the damned research and don't sit there and call people stupid who actually gonna we're gonna go guys like me i'm gonna sit there and, and pour through literally hundreds of pages of blue book documents rel- relative to the year that at least we as best we were able to determine that french claimed that he had uh had this encounter, I go and I do that because, I'm sorry, if somebody says that they work for the federal government, I'm going to go try and find documentation on them. And if that person says they work for the government and there's no documentation on them, then I'm going to ask one of two questions. Are they a fraud or is there a secret project? And you know what? The further inquiry based on those two questions will probably lead to one or two revelations, and then we'll know exactly what quantity we're dealing with. But, you know, you, you, the, the absence of any proof for a quantity does not substitute the lack of evidence for another. And and the lack of evidence for one cannot be used as proof for another. It goes both ways. In this instance, we can't assume that, well, if French was a debunker working on UFOs, then there's not going to be any stuff, and therefore we have to take his word. No bullshit. Go read the damn UFO reports that were actually released by Project Blue Book and see if they corroborate with what he said he was doing when he worked for Blue Book. That's the way that you go about it if you're going to be a researcher. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, no, so no, back to wait, well, I think we should take uh, a quick break here, actually. Um, and uh, you know, you guys mind if we take a two minute break? Yeah, no, that's good. Okay, guys, we'll be right back with more from Micah Hanks. with more with author Micah Hanks of the Graylian Report, uh, author of Magic, Mysticism, and Molecule and the UFO Singularity. Uh, Graham, I believe you had a couple of things lined up for Micah. Yeah, I just uh, I want to try and word these uh, intelligently, but uh, first of all, I want to mention, too, you've reinvigorated my interest in uh, Jacques Vallée's book, Dimensions, which I actually noticed I've, I've had it on my bookshelf since my dad bought it in the late 80s, so I can't wait to, to get into that. Oh, wow. And I also like how you quoted uh, quoted all these quotes I haven't heard yet from Hynek and Vallée. Like the, there's a lot of uh, new stuff in your book. Um, so I had a question or comment about I loved how you talked about how the standard of our intelligence is changing like it used to be remembering dates or formulas or whatever now that's becoming no longer relevant like it's it's almost more meaningful now to be able to know how to locate little bits of data and facts and to be able to string that together into meaningful threads of info yeah yeah uh, you know as a matter of fact I remember uh, listening to a report a news report 
that talked about how American physics universities, as opposed to teaching students to remember certain equations, are now working uh, on teaching them how to find scientific information about equations and resources online. And rather than having students go and, and uh, you know, uh, listen to like a lecture and then go home and, and, and read something based on the lecture, they reversed that process and they'll have students go do a reading and then when they come to school, rather than attending a lecture, there's a, more of an open discussion based on the reading, uh, and they answer questions based on what, what students have uh, read. And, and if students don't have questions, then they'll discuss the most interesting or the most challenging aspects of the study. Uh, so, so all these kinds of things are beginning to show that I think not just Internet culture, but maybe even the accumulation of knowledge and, and technology itself and the way that uh, you know, cumulative functions within applications of, of different varieties of science and, and communications, technology, all these kinds of things are, are, are lending to a greater database and a greater, you know, honestly, I think that at one time you might say that a person who was adept in a certain area of science, to put things simply, could learn basically all that there was to know according to conventional scientific models and understandings. Today there is so much and there have been so many people who have worked as pioneers in di- different fields, there's no way that in a single individual can know all there is to know about a certain field of science. And so the best that that individual can do is they can learn the rudiments of that and then know where to go to look to find the information. And so the literal structure of our educational systems has had to change to account for the fact that we have a growing body of technology that exceeds, uh, you know, the, 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 I guess the fundamental limitations of what a human mind can retain and, and what a person, based on their innate individual abilities, biologically speaking, that they can, that they can learn and amass in a lifetime. Uh, so what happens when, again, in a post-singularity world, we are utilizing brain-computer interfaces, you know, that allow us to maybe take certain information in and then store it on a hard drive that we can basically plug ourselves into and randomly access any time we need to. We're looking at a different kind of a future. But, you know, again, I think that we're seeing the precursors to that in the way that the education system is fundamentally changing to account for the tremendous amount of data that we have at our disposal. Mm -hmm. And then speaking of the technological increase over the last little while, I mean, being interested in in UFOs and the singularity, it's hard not to notice the huge coincidence of of the modern UFO era sort of being uh, linked or or in parallel with our our real increase in technology in the last 60, 70 years. It is difficult to deny that there's a connection there. You know, I think yeah. that uh, what we obviously see, it's, it's funny because I think that a lot of people, uh, modern UFO researchers, and at one time I, you know, what's funny is just within the last couple of years, I've looked at it very much the same. Uh, if these technologies represent visitors from another planet, then what we've been dealing with uh, have effectively been, uh, you know, the technologies that, uh, or rather intelligences, technological civilizations maybe, we I guess could say as easily as anything, that have taken interest in our own nuclear proliferation. Um, at some point along the line, you know, I was talking about how pivotal the, the period of World War II was. At some point along the line, it seems that we began to look at things a lot differently. Uh, and, and, and rather than there being perhaps an intelligence that took interest in us, it could very well be that we took interest in an intelligence 
mm-hmm. although we didn't realize that that's what we were doing. And the reason I point out the World War II years is because during that period, we began to really, really, really increase our use of and our and our practical applications for radar systems, for things like that. Uh, you know, for detection of of electromagnetic fields and and, and, and different kinds of uh, you know uh, non-ionizing radiation, for instance, background radiation, gamma radiation, X-rays, all different kinds of things. Microwaves, yeah, yeah. And so, in in being able to to expand technologically our ability to <laughs> I put up the air quotes again to observe our universe around us. Uh, could it be that there were technological applications that were all of a sudden allowing us to observe aspects of our reality that had been there for a long time, but that we had not been capable of perceiving directly prior to the Second World War and prior to the innovation of different kinds of technologies that were necessitated during wartime, but which later, of course, allowed us to perceive things about the world around us that, again, we were only able to glimpse even with these, what were at the time, incredibly advanced technologies, radar systems, were were survey meters and Geiger counters and things like this that allowed us, you know, not only the visual spectra, but also access to spectrum that included, for instance, you know, radar or, or, you know, electromagnetism and, and radiation these sorts of things, geomagnetic, electromagnetic, whatever, you know, artificial, natural fields. Essentially, what, what we did during the Second World War is that is a necessity for innovating and thus winning the conflict. We created not just, you know, America. I'm saying that, uh, you know, cultures and countries, of course, all around the world that were involved in the conflict for different reasons and in different ways and with different technologies. We were all innovating different things that l- were applications that went toward raising human perception in different ways, and it could be that the UFO phenomenon, if we were to assume that it was something, whatever it is, that has been with us for a long time, we only at that point became aware of it, rather than utilizing new technologies that flagged the attention of an extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah, or at least aware of it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of equate that to, like... uh how they say, like, back when the fucking Spanish and them first came over to the Americas, how they, the natives couldn't see the ships, only the shamans could, because they, they just couldn't actually, their brains couldn't perceive that. You know what I mean? You guys yeah. have heard of that shit. Yeah, yeah. That, right? I, think, I think that was mentioned in the film, What the Bleep Do We Really Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's we're, exactly what Which I is got. a fascinating film, and I've been interested in that film. And, and I found that film to be... Uh, helpful to me personally, uh, but by the same token, I, I've, I've also had more of my, uh, you know, my, my friends in the more intellectual circles, you know, describe that as just being propaganda for the Ramtha cult. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't, uh, I don't buy I, that. I, I, I like that. Uh, I like that movie. Actually, have you heard of the new one coming out, Micah, called "People versus the State of Illusion"? I haven't, but but again, I, I would say that uh, you know, in terms of an educational video that. You know, if you watch the unedited version, uh, you know, I thought What the Bleep Do We Know uh, had some very useful points. I found it uplifting and enjoyable, and in this day and age, (laughs) it's hard to find anything that's uplifting and enjoyable. Okay, but the new film that you mentioned, no, I haven't heard about that. It's just coming out. The premiere is this Friday coming up, I think. So I'm going to go to that uh, in in the university uh, in Calgary here. Wow. Yeah, so it's got a lot of the same people uh, as What the Bleep. You know, I, I was unaware that there was another film coming out. I'm going to have to... Uh, is that like out. a sequel? Yeah, yeah I, I think it is. They, they don't call it that, but uh, I'm pretty sure it's got a lot What's of the same called? thing. Sorry, People I'm versus, just distracted. Uh, it's lightning like a motherfucker all of a sudden. 
Yeah, it's really dark and cloudy out there. So That's... it's called People versus the State of Illusion. Well, by the really? way, the the, uh, the the lightning that you guys are experiencing is harp basically trying to end this conversation. <laughs> oh, motherfucker! That's what's happening. <laughs> yeah, tornadoes down there, lightning up here. I haven't had tornadoes here yet, but I've had some absolutely. I mean, I thought there was a werewolf outside my window. The wind was blowing so hard recently, and then of course, you know, in the Midwest, there'd been yeah tremendous tornadoes. Our hearts go out to all the folks who've sustained damage yeah. from that. But you know, yeah. I've had microbursts and things happen right here in Asheville, just within the vicinity of the Graylian bunker. Not underground, of course, but above ground. Our facilities have uh, you know sustained some wind damage before. So, God Usually help. It's us. GMO that gets us into arguments. G-M-O. Good Mama Offlanders. Yeah, I, I say it's future and grab and Actually, RPJ agreed with me. So. RPJ, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. He and I have disagreed on that. You know, back in the day when people had talked about genetically produced meats, uh, you know, I'd talked about on the, on the show, uh, you know, essentially... My reasons for thinking that that, that that it was a little strange, and RPJ kind of goes, no, no, man, he says, you got to take into consideration, you know, if we're dealing with scarcity, you know, uh, what I have called petri meat, which would be genetically not only just modified, but engineered. Fuck yeah, maybe that shit, you could just make it taste like whatever you want, just perfect. Bam, there, there are, why there not? Are, there's good and there's bad to every argument. You know, just as like I've, I've said with the UFO singularity, I'm not necessarily a proponent for what we would call technological uh, singularity. I just don't think that you can necessarily avoid it. I think that to an extent our technological progression and even a, a variety of what we would call conscious evolution is almost inevitable. Uh, and I think that with regard to GMOs, it's the same sort of thing. We're dealing with a technology that is probably going to utilize what we would essentially call, um, you know, it's, it's going to utilize uh, an end of famine, if you will, uh, technologically speaking, and and provide and offer food for people in ways that uh, people previously have not been able to achieve or or have access to. But you know, in the long run, it's also going to potentially cause issues. And, and the primary issue people have had, for instance, with the farmer assurance provision, uh, which uh, the uh, deterrence to that called the Monsanto Protection Act, they all say that as soon as you institute law that protects a company like Monsanto from any repercussions that may be incurred from on down the road, the premature use of genetically modified uh, or genetically engineered foods. You know, that that, that right there, I mean, think, think about that. We don't know what we're feeding people. And yeah, it may, no, it may, I agree. That's one thing, right? That's one thing. Actually, I should mention right now because I talked about this the last episode too. Is Grimerica does not condone Monsanto in any way, shape, or form. My argument is just that uh, I, I don't believe that GMO should be controlled by any corporation. But GMO, to me, in two hundred years, is the inevitable future either that or if if i mean if we don't want to curb population or or, or and, we, and we want to stop killing animals and resources at the same time then gmo seems to be the only alternative to, to me anyway i think that's a wise way to look at things to an extent you know because i mean while we are resistant to change right now if properly implemented 
In other words, once we know what we're dealing with on down the road, GMOs may not be a bad thing at all. And I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, my God, Micah Hanks, how dare you? But, but the thing is, is that, again, properly implemented, that technology may be very useful and safe on down the road. The problem that we have with Monsanto, and the reason I do not stand behind Monsanto, there go the MIBs again. Guys, are you with me? Yeah, I'm here. Well, somebody's there. Uh, the problem with Monsanto specifically is that before we know what we're capable of, before we know what potential harms may be incurred from the use of genetically mod- modified or engineered foods or anything like that, we're going to go ahead and use GMOs, say to hell with what dangers may be incurred, and you know what? We're going to legislate protections so that if something bad happens, it doesn't come back to bite us on the ass and nobody's held accountable. Furthermore, Monsanto is going to sue guys who have a plot of land next to a crop that's a Monsanto crop that gets fertilized by the wind blowing across this other guy's property, you know, and pollinating his fields, it's absurd. Yes, that is, in my opinion, again, being a radical centrist and being probably, you know, someone who is, if anything, really a a constitutionally-minded American, I still think that that's probably the epitome of the big, nasty, evil corporation. And, And I don't think that GMOs are bad. I think Monsanto is bad, in essence. Yeah, I I agree one hundred hundred percent. I have no no problem with GMO. Well, I do. I guess I I suppose I do at this point because the science is new and I I suppose it's unpredictable. And Monsanto is fucked up. But on a general level, I think GMOs are just a natural step in humans' evolution. Yeah, I, I, would I mean, agree. nobody likes to hear stories about how you can only have, you know, one kid in China. You know how you heard? I don't I'm pretty sure that shit was never true. Maybe it was. But we all have heard the horror stories before. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. And nobody nobody wants to live that lifestyle. And, you know, nobody wants to kill all the fucking uh, all the apples or for vegetarians don't want to eat all the apples or all the oranges and they don't want us to kill all the animals, and we've already brought cows to some sort of fucked up existence. So, I mean, at what point do we have to accept the fact that what's humane is probably what's going to come out of a laboratory? Oh, absolutely. So another thing, well, one thing I wanted to mention before uh, before I forget is some of the amazing artwork by your brother and by uh, Scotty Roberts in the book. <laughs> well, thank you very much, and, and they're both incredibly talented and I have to say, in addition to lending some of his artwork, Scotty Roberts, my uh, my my compatriot, my brother, and my co-planner for the paradigm. He's really actually the mastermind behind the, the paradigm symposium. I'm his co-planner. He's he's the boss. But uh, Scotty um, Scotty wrote the forward for the UFO Singularity, and he claims he's one who claims not to really be a ufologist, and he has not followed UFO research. He he will correspond with me privately about it. But it's so funny because he said, you know, I'm not someone who's well-versed in UFO research, and yet in his book I felt that he probably spent, you know, if anything, Scotty really kind of encapsulated the UFO argument uh, as well as anyone ever has. And and he did it in such a way that uh, that was both eloquent and intellectual at once. And so, I mean, I was just really amazed, and, and I'm so glad not only to have his artistic uh, contributions, but also his uh, his intellectual contributions, just as well. 
Symposium 2013. Is there is there anything else you want to say about that? You know, the Paradigm Symposium is, uh, man, it's, it's, it's again, it's... Save two tickets. I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say uh, that. Well, we keep be procrastinating, the... and I don't want to run out of... Well, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the same without you guys there, and I know that for certain. So uh, you know, it's it's I'm I'm getting excited. You know, some of the new additions this year: are Robert Baval, we've got Robert Shock, we've got uh, as a matter of fact Scott Walter of the program America Unearthed. Uh, you know, a, a, a couple of the uh, the the folks who had been uh, a, a Paradigm last year who are recurring. Uh, you know, who are the regulars, if you will. Uh, John Ward. John Ward, of course, who has co-authored a new book with Scotty Roberts. You know, he's going to be there. Nick Redfern, Reedy Jones, Larry Flaxman will be back again. So, you know, I'm, I'm, if anything, as exciting as the first one was, <laughs> I didn't think I would ever be more excited about Paradigm Symposium. But, but I, in, in, a, in a funny way, I think I'm more excited about this year because it's like last year we were just all out. This year... We've kind of narrowed our focus, and we've gotten more serious about things. But but now we really know what we're doing, and now it's really on. And I'm just I'm really so excited. If there was a good event that we came to last year, and we all met, and we all and that was what was so amazing. I think about Paradigm last year is that you know you Graham and and Darren and I uh, we we'd corresponded for a while, and you guys have been greatly in report listeners. But but we met at Paradigm, and that was a convergence of sorts. And and that it happened in in 2012 was. You know, symbologically significant in, in a lot of different other ways, but but you know, I think that that was just the beginning, and uh, so I'm, if anything, I'm more excited about Paradigm Symposium 2013, and and all the the things that are going to be afforded us, all the amazing wonders and insights that we'll be able to attain at this event. So you know, folks, you don't want to miss it. It is ParadigmSymposium.com, and tickets are on sale. Right now. So come on out, because I'm sure you're going to see Darren and Graham and me there. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing I'll be fucking obtaining is a fucking plane ticket. <laughs> there is zero chance I'm driving. Yeah, you guys did the long haul last time. <laughs> oh, dude, I feel sorry for Graham. I was so hungover. On the last day, he had to like drive. 18 hours straight, I think. <laughs> God bless him. Well, I bless you guys both, and I hope that you'll both... Make it back safely, and, and yes, if you can, fly this time, and, <laughs> and don't spend 18 hours driving, although I'm so glad that you both did, because, you know, I got to meet you there. Yeah, it was a great time. So uh, say hi to Caleb and the gang in the bunker from the guys in the igloo. Oh, we will, and I hope that you're going to keep that tag, you know, uh, you know, from, from from the gang in the igloo, you know, or from the, uh, from the what would you call it, the from the intellects in the igloo. It is Grimerica, and it's been my pleasure, gentlemen, to be with you on Grimerica. Have you back sometime, and uh, you know maybe we'll send some other uh, uh, members of the Graylian gang your way here before long, okay? Okay, sounds good, Micah. Thanks for stopping by. Cosmic for love, sure. my brothers. Let's stay in touch. Miss you both. Okay. Well, that was our chat with Micah Hanks. What a fascinating conversation. Yeah, what a great time. And uh, a, a big thanks to Micah again for, for saving the day with his recording equipment. <laughs> um, I found that uh, really, really challenging chat, chatting with him in, in a way where like, I, I really was wanting to, to ask him more questions and interrupt him, but he was just going. like He reminds me of this uh, 
like a genius wind-up doll you know you press the button and he just goes 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 right so it's yeah. just like trying really hard just let him go let him go because it's fascinating stuff right yeah yeah he definitely i could listen to that guy talk for hours he definitely yeah, I, just non-stop uh, interesting facts and and theories yeah and i love how he got into the whole police state and all that stuff too so we got a little bit out of uh out of the ufo singularity which is great it all seems to kind of overlap a bit anyways right yeah no it was a great chat um i don't know the you guys might have noticed that uh i was maybe slurring my words a little bit closer to the end of the podcast <laughs> me and micah had decided to, uh, to to share a drink a celebratory drink at the beginning uh before the recording and uh with all the gremlins and everything, by the time we finished the recording, I had had uh, a few too many drinks to recording podcasts, I suppose. But I, I held it together all right. Yeah, uh, barely. Barely, yeah, <laughs> definitely barely. But um, I suppose so that wanted to talk sometimes. about. Yeah, I want to talk about our, our emails are all set up now too, and the and the website. So I, you can email uh, me or Darren, and mine is Graham at Grimerica dot com. So that's G-R-A-H-A-M at Grimerica.com. Yeah, and mine's uh, Darren at Grimerica.com. So that's D-A-R-R-E-N. Or uh, feedback at Grimerica.ca, which is kind of fucked up, I guess. But whatever. You guys will figure it out. Um, And feel free to come to the site and sign up. Feel free to leave us a a review on iTunes. And I I definitely recommend picking up... uh, this book, the uh, the UFO Singularity, because I, I really enjoyed the read and uh, and it's definitely worth you know the fifteen dollars or whatever whatever it costs. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention too is uh, is Micah had some lectures at uh, at the UFO Congress. Also, he was on a panel discussion with uh, Stanton Friedman, Richard Dolan, and it was called UFOs in the twenty ufology in the twenty first century. And he also had his UFO Singularity. Uh, lecture so openminds.tv will have those dvds for sale actually so if anybody wants to check out that go to the store and then click on paradigm no sorry click on ufo congress 2013 and you can uh, you can buy the dvds there so yeah okay yeah. that uh i think i've actually still got your ufo congress micah hanks yeah and yeah. childress and maybe one more i think i have yeah. three of them yeah Grant Cameron. Yeah, that's, that's right. Who it is. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah I, we should have him on one day. Grant Cameron. Yeah. 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 For sure. I'd 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 be into that for sure. Um, we do have Crypto next week, and we might uh, sneak in Caleb Hanks before that. We'll we'll see how it happens. Uh, see what our workload's like with with the ones we've been pumping out already. But uh, overall, there's been a pretty good, uh, pretty good ride. We've been enjoying it so far, so we won't be stopping anytime soon. Uh, I hope you guys are enjoying listening to them as much as we're enjoying making them. Sometimes, sometimes it gets a little frustrating, especially with the web stuff. That's that fucking shit can get frustrating sometimes. Alrighty, that's about it then, eh? See you next time. Yep, that's uh, that's it from us. We'll see you with next week. Or, I, I'd. I'm not sure if our next episode out is going to be Caleb or Stanley Krippner, but uh, it'll be out uh, in the future, and we'll see you when we see you.